1: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keller McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Jenny Burnett back to the show. Jenny is an Associate Professor of Anthropology. She directs the Institute of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Georgia State University. And I first interviewed Jenny about a decade ago when we talked about her first book, Genocide Lives in Us, Women, Memory, and Silence in Rwanda. Today, we're going to talk about her recent book, To Save Heaven and Earth, Rescue in the Rwandan Genocide. It's an important book, uh, one, one which all genocide scholars and policymakers will need to wrestle with, uh, and one that uh, I, I've been re- recommending to everybody I see. Uh, and so I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk about it with Jenny. So. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies.
2: Thank you so much, Kelly. It's great to be here today.
1: So you've been on, but not for a while. So I wonder if you could just take a moment to reintroduce yourself to the audience and say a little bit about how you ended up interested in anthropology, how you ended up interested in gender studies and, and how that translated or led to uh, mass violence in Rwanda.
2: Yeah, thank you. So. Um... I grew up um, in mostly near Dallas, Texas, from the age of three until 18. Um, And um, I remember it was um, I read Anne Frank's diary as maybe a 10, 11 year old girl, and it made a huge impression on me. Um, And then it was probably, I guess, my freshman year of high school, we were learning about World War II. And um, this was the 80s. I was very terrified of nuclear war, as we were back then. Um, And my parents' comforting um, words about being terrified of nuclear war was, don't worry, we live not far from a military base. You'll be evaporated in seconds. It was not very very heartwarming. Parents Um, of the year. Yes. In any case, I was studying World War II in high school and I discovered um, that the United States had dropped nuclear bombs on Japan, not just once, but twice. Mm -hmm. And I was really outraged and horrified. And I remember I went home and I screamed at my parents for not telling me that we had committed these atrocities. Um, So that's my first recollection of sort of coming face to face or wrestling with difficult problems related to mass violence. Um, And I went off to college and um, I was at Boston University and I had the privilege to take a course with Nobel Prize winner, Elie Wiesel, um, and uh, read uh, a lot of his work with him lecturing us. And that sort of was my introduction to Holocaust studies, genocide studies. Um, At the same time, my interest in anthropology emerged, I went off to college thinking I was interested in international relations. um, And then I discovered that was mostly about governments. And I was not interested in governments, I was interested in people. And then I learned that anthropology is the study of humans. So that's how I got to anthropology. Um, In the middle of all that, I also started engaging in human rights activism uh, as a volunteer with Amnesty International. And It was in April, 1994, I was preparing to graduate from Boston University um, and uh, we start hearing the news of what's happening in Rwanda. I don't remember ever having heard of Rwanda before that point in time, but it definitely uh, made a deep impression on me. Um, In particular, because even the internal Amnesty International reports at the time explains the violence in terms of Um, tall people and short people killing each other because some were tall and some were short. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not what why humans do the things they do. Um, And of course, that was not what was happening in Rwanda at the time. But that was the very simplistic explanation that was In the internal amnesty reports, the US media was reporting it as tribal violence based on age old hatreds, which also I didn't find very, um, didn't seem to match up with what I understood of how people and why people do things so those are sort of the things that brought me to an interest in Rwanda and then fast forward a few years I end up in graduate school at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill uh, in the Department of Anthropology and uh, I was lucky that at UNC Chapel Hill at the time two specialists on Rwanda were on faculty there David Newberry in the history department Mm -hmm. and Catherine Newberry in the political science department. And so um, I had their mentoring the entire time I was there. And that's sort of how I got launched into focusing my interests on Rwanda.
1: I think everyone who grows up at that time has a story about parents and nuclear war. I remember (laughs) at about that, I don't know, I was a teenager. I remember sitting at the dinner table and listening Mm -hmm. to my parents. I lived north of Detroit and arguing about whether in case of a nuclear war, they would drive north or south. And it took me a while to figure out that this was an argument about whether they wanted to live or die. And I was appropriately appalled after that. But being a typical teenage boy, I just went and played basketball and forgot about it. So I admire your passion. Um, this is this is a podcast about your second book, but it's been a while since we talked about your first book. I wonder if you could just remind Listeners, what's what's the elevator pitch for "Genocide Lives in Us"?
2: Yeah, so that book focuses on the roles of Rwandan women in post-genocide reconstruction and reconciliation in Rwanda. I conducted the research for that book between 1997 and approximately 2007, um, and it also examines sort of the politics of memory. Uh, what was remembered, who was remembered, how it was remembered. And um, in the book, I put forward the notion of what I call amplified silence, which was the silence in public spaces around the deaths of certain people uh, during uh, the civil war and genocide, because the genocide occurs in the middle of the civil war, in the middle of a civil war, and there were many different kinds of deaths during that time. Now, of course, the genocide was um, expansive, holistic, and it was definitely a campaign of extermination, Um, but many Hutus also died in the genocide or died uh, due to acts of war and other kinds of things happening. Um, And so that's what I look at in that book. Um, And uh, in some sense, the book is in part also about how a society moves forward after large scale mass death and violence and what what that looks like. How do you move forward from that? How do you go on to make meaning out of life uh, when you've seen your children killed in front of you? Um, and um, I try to emphasize it's a very difficult book I think to read, but I try to emphasize in the book the, um, the real miracle of human resilience mm-hmm. and the fact that people can rebuild meaningful lives after everything falls apart. Mm-hmm.
1: So some of that emphasis on silence and memory will come out a little bit later in this interview when we talk about martyrs. But um, so now you're looking at rescue uh, to save heaven and earth, rescue in the Rwandan genocide. How, how did you decide to spend this last several years of your life thinking about that?
2: Great question. Um, I think in my early times in Rwanda, the survivors of the genocide I met um, almost all of them, they all had saved themselves, in a sense, they'd all taken a- action to um, save their own lives. Um, but almost all of them were also helped at some point in time by someone. And yet these stories were rarely spoken about in public. And I think um, when you study a difficult topic like genocide, it's it can be quite easy to lose hope or lose optimism in humanity. Um, And so for, in a certain sense, this book was me looking for those moments of goodness in all of the terrible things that happened in Rwanda in 1994, Um, sort of uh, what we could call glimmers of hope, um, of goodness um, in the midst of horror. So um, in part, it was about that. Um, Another thing that drove me to write this book is understanding the complexity of, the choices people, ordinary were one in space. The choices ordinary were one in space, two were not being targeted in the genocide. Um, the links that people had to go to simply to not become a participant or a perpetrator in the genocide, given that it was um, state policy to go out and kill your neighbors or go out and kill Tutsi and hunt them down. Um, and in the end, the majority of Hutu's did not participate in the genocide in Rwanda. Um, and I think um, it's important to recognize that, but it's also important to recognize the complexity of what that is, and then um, how how also rescue itself is a complicated phenomenon. So so that
1: that leads us to the book. And so you start out giving kind of a survey of traditional historic well. I'm a historian, so I'll say historiographical, but social science theories that, that try to explain rescue. So, so how have people tried to explain this in the past?
2: Yeah, so some of the, the earliest research on rescue in the context of genocide was done by Samuel and Pearl Olinor. Um S- Samuel Oliner himself was a, uh, a Holocaust survivor. And um, they did interviews with um, people identified as the righteous among nations in the Holocaust. So people uh, recognized officially by the state of Israel and its foundation Yad Vashem um, as Gentiles, non-Jews who um, helped to rescue Jews from the Holocaust with no financial incentive incentive or other benefit to themselves. Um, so they interviewed um, Scores of these righteous among nations, um, and they concluded that um, they shared what they called an altruistic personality. That they had a compulsion to be altruistic, to help each, to help other humans, to potentially sacrifice themselves to do so. Um, so that was the earliest study. Um, others then uh, began investigating this. Um, There is the work of Kristen Monroe, a political scientist. Um, She also interviewed um, Righteous Among Nations, um, and she she added on to this theory of an altruistic personality and uh, made it more complex. There has been a lot of research also in psychology looking at altruism, trying to understand it, Excuse me, there's the work of Irvin Staub himself, who is also a Holocaust survivor and a psychologist. He looked at, um, he examined altruism and he determined that um, he was trying to understand where it arises from is it from religion does it arise from upbringing um, and he developed a theory that it's multimodal that many different factors contribute to whether or not someone has these motivations um, to do good to of potentially to self-sacrifice Now uh, once um, comparative genocide studies so once we go beyond Holocaust studies and we begin looking at other genocides and comparative, perspective, um, that's when the social science theory uh, becomes more rich and complex Um, because even the Holocaust itself was a different phenomenon across Europe. It's not the same across Europe. It's actually quite different um, how the Holocaust unfolds in Germany versus how it unfolded in Hungary or in Poland um, or in Ukraine, for example. Um, But when we add on other genocides, um, then the social science theory becomes more rich and recognizes, began to recognize that things like geography matter, the opportunity to rescue matter, um, having being part of a minority group not targeted in the genocide. Also, um, those people tended to uh, engage in rescue more often in certain genocides. So a wider variety of factors have been identified as being relevant. Um, And then some Holocaust researchers have taken up that comparative genocide theory and then looked more in depth at the Holocaust um, and also identified that sociological factors matter, who you're in relationship with. Um, And then uh, there's the work of um, Brown, who looks uh, at the Holocaust in the Netherlands and who identifies um, the degree to which being a religious minority played an impact in rescue. Um, And he's a political scientist, I believe, by training or maybe a sociologist, but he uses quantitative methods uh, to investigate this um, uh, with great historical precision. And so um, I drew also on his theoretical perspectives in writing this book where I examine and compare Muslims in Rwanda with Christians and particularly Catholics. um, And I have one case that looks at Adventists as well.
1: So we'll ask you to talk about that a little bit. Down the road here but but first you, you brought us nicely to the theory that informs your work uh, actor network theory so can you say a little bit about what act, actor network theory is and why you found it so valuable in understanding behavior
2: great question it's not an easy question to answer <laughs> um,
1: that's why no. i let you talk
2: <laughs> got you so actor network theory comes out of science and technology studies. Um, it comes out of a French um, perspective of thinking. Uh, one of the early originators of it was Michelle Callon and uh, John Law, who's British. Um, Bruno Latour is one of its primary proponents. Um, but essentially actor network theory um, is an, an, an answer to the structure versus agency problem in the social sciences. Um, The social sciences have tended to emphasize either agency, individuals capacity to act in the world, um, or they have emphasized that structure controls everything we do. Um, And actor network theory tries to bring those together and show the ways that structure is itself an assemblage of individuals and their capacity to act. Um, and the structure um, conditions or shapes, the ways that they can act. Um, One of the revolutionary aspects of actor network theory though, is that even inanimate objects or animals can be attributed agency um, in these assemblages. Um, And um, in anthropology in particular, actor network theory has mostly been used to um, explore the relationships between humans and inanimate objects. Uh, So, for example, the relationship of um, the border, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, the desert, and the ways that the U.S. state has deployed it as barriers to um, undocumented immigration, Um, and it's the work of Jason DeLeon, who's at UCLA, um, deployed actor network theory in his book um, to examine that to great effect. Um, what I do in my book, though, is one of the very earliest articles on actor network theory by John Lawn, Michelle Calon, explored um, its meanings in terms of human agency, and they focus on a CEO or an upper level business executive in a science company. And they explore the ways that his power is not vested in him as a human, but is instead um, invested in an entire network of things that give him power. So his office, his desk, his fancy watch, the train he goes to work on, the fancy bars he meets clients in, that all of these things contribute to his power and authority. Um, And so um, in this book, I kind of return to these origins of actor network theory to understand human agency um, and the ways that an individual's agency is a total effect of the people they're in relationship to, the circumstances they're in, and all of the um, inanimate objects that they're in relationship with. So a machete, a roadblock, the border, a lake, a canoe, Um, a truck, knowing smuggling routes. Um, And so I tried to bring those all together to demonstrate the ways that opportunities to rescue presented themselves momentarily in the genocide over and over and over again to people, but just in the same ways that opportunities to perpetrate presented themselves over and over and over again to individuals. Um, And so the decision to become a perpetrator or a rescuer was not a one-time decision in the Rwandan genocide, but instead a decision that um, a person had to make over and over and over again. And at any given moment, the likelihood of how they would decide to act was very strongly influenced by the context they were in and what was happening at that moment.
0: I
1: also direct the honors program at Newman. And uh, as such, I see somewhere around 70 to 80 prospective students every year, sometimes more. Mostly, they come to my office, which, as you can see on Zoom, is full of books. And it took me a while to realize how the books created a kind of authority and status that, that lent itself to the pitch I was giving. And I have now preferentially tried to do it in my office because of the kind of seriousness that creates. Um, we'll talk about agency and luck down the road. Um, But I do want to ask a couple more things about the terms you use. Uh, You use a couple of terms and or categories that come out of Holocaust studies um, that I'd like to just kind of give you a chance to talk about. Uh, One of them is this notion of a gray zone um, and choiceless choices. So can you say a little bit about how you use those terms in your book?
2: Yeah, great. So um, the Gray Zone originates from the writings of Primo Levi, um, a Holocaust survivor. Um, And in his essay entitled The Gray Zone, he talks about um, the ways that concentration camps during the Holocaust were these moral gray zones, in particular for those imprisoned in them. and um he talks about the ways that the structure of the camp both the physical structure and the ways the camps were run by the nazi state um implicated prisoners in the camp in the um imposition of violence on others um and that um in the camp it made um it made it very very difficult to have morally pure decision-making. No decision was, could only be good. There was almost always some kind of evil um, embedded in it. Um, One example he gives is they were simply not fed enough food. Um, And so taking more than your share of the food or stealing someone's bread might allow you to survive another day, but you did so at the cost or the expense of another person's life. Um, An important caveat he makes is he explores the ways in particular that um, in the ways that the concentration camps were run, certain prisoners were given positions of authority over other prisoners. Um, And he observed that often those prisoners in positions of authority um, would um, wield violence against other prisoners or be um, unreasonably or unnecessarily mean or cruel to other prisoners. Um, And he was trying to understand how and why that happened. And he concluded that in part, it was due to this complete abasement of the people in the camps and the prisoners in the camps and the fact that they were all implicated or complicit in certain ways in their own uh, debasement. Um, And then um, he traces it, he traces, this moral gray zone up the hierarchy of the camp. Um, And he even acknowledges that certain of the Nazi guards and soldiers, um, that they couldn't be held completely morally accountable for their actions because they were conditioned by this gray zone. He does make it very clear, though, that the commander of the camp, that this moral gray zone did not apply to the commander of the camp, that that is a clear line. So I adopt this notion of the gray zone and bring it to the context of Rwanda. Now there were not concentration camps during the genocide in Rwanda. Um, And so um, conceptually it's quite a different thing, but essentially I conceive of the entire territory of the country controlled by the genocidal state as comprising a moral gray zone where it was often hard for people to know whether um, the decisions they were making were good, morally good, or morally bad decisions, or morally wrong decisions. Um, one example is um, one of the one of the many ways that people became implicated in genocidal violence in Rwanda was the requirements um, in rural areas, in particular, for all households to send a man to participate in nightly security patrols. Now, nightly security patrols were a regular part of daily life in Rwanda prior to the genocide, um, because it was a civil war and the security patrols were there to be on the lookout and ensure that thieves weren't active in the community and to um, guard against um, attacks by the rebel army, et cetera. In the genocide, however, these night patrols um, are largely deployed to search for uh, Tutsis who are in hiding or find people who are in hiding. And so um, when you're called to go on night patrol, suddenly um, when it's the genocide, you, you can refuse to go, but there are costs to refusing to go. It's easier in the moment to agree to go. But once you're in a patrol, it increases the likelihood that you may become implicated in discovering someone in hiding and then turning them over to people who will kill them. Um, And so this is sort of how I deploy the gray zone um, in the genocide, um, in the context of the Rwandan genocide. There are many other more um, poignant examples of this, but that's a simple one that I think illustrates it at its most basic level. Um, In terms of choiceless choices, um, I forget the scholar that uh, mentioned this term but essentially, a choiceless choice, was it, it comes also out of Holocaust studies. A choiceless choice means that you have a choice, but all choices are equally evil or wrong or bad. And so you have many different bad choices, which is the least bad choice you can make. Um, so that's essentially the at its basic level what a choiceless choice is.
1: And then one more kind of prefatory question real quick, and and I'll, because these are categories that also come out of the Holocaust, but I'll introduce this by asking you to tell the story of a man you call, I believe, I assume it's pronounced Edie in chapter one and his, um, is the decision he had to make at a checkpoint. So.
2: Yeah, so um, Edie at the time of the genocide was a young man in his early twenties or late teens and um his uh mother was tutsi and his father um was uh, hutu but he had grown up only with his mother his father had abandoned the family um either when he was an infant or a very young child so he had grown up with his mother and uh when the genocide um started um, his mother said this is going to be very, very bad because she had a she remembered what had happened and in prior instances of violence against Tutsi in 1959 and in uh, the 1970s. Um, and she said, this is going to be very, very bad. They're going to kill us. Um, and um, she went into hiding with a friend and he went to stay with a Hutu friend um, to protect him. Now. During the genocide. Um, it's hard for people to understand, but there wasn't always constant pressure or feelings of that killings were not happening every single day or every single hour of every single day. So at some point, Edie goes with his friend out to the market to try to buy sugar. Um, and unfortunately, he gets stopped. They get stopped at a checkpoint um, and checkpoints were used in the genocide. And. Um, primarily as a way to check to see if people should be killed for being Tutsi or not. Um, And at this checkpoint, um, his identity card said he was um, Hutu, I believe, or he didn't have it. I can't remember right now. Um, But uh, he gets stopped at the checkpoint and the guards at the checkpoint, the inter militia at the checkpoint don't believe that he is Hutu. And so... Um, They make him kneel down, and they're hitting him and yelling at him and um, accusing him of being um, an RPF accomplice or a rebel accomplice. Um, And this mistreatment goes on for hours and hours and hours, and his friend is there standing there watching. and then at some point, another man is brought to the checkpoint, um, and um, his identity card says Tutsi on it. Um, and so at some point in time, one of the soldiers at the checkpoint shoves a spear into Edie's hand and says, "If you're, if you're not Tutsi, if you're not an RPF accomplice, show us you're not and kill this man." Um, And Edie refused. And then one of the soldiers um, stabs um, Edie in the leg. So he's bleeding and they hit him some more. And um, as Edie related it to me in an interview, I interviewed him. He said, at some point, I don't know what happened. I couldn't take it anymore. And I stood up and I took the spear and I stabbed the man. I don't even know where, and I ran away. Um, so Edie goes on to survive the genocide. He becomes actually a soldier um, in the RPF. Um, he's deployed to Congo. He fights in the Congo Wars um, with the new Rwandan government. Um, and then during the genocide trials and gachacha trials in Rwanda, um, he's accused of killing this man. And um, there are many witnesses to this crime. And he goes to the court and says, Yes, I stabbed the man. I don't know if I killed him, but I stabbed him. Um, and he confessed to what he had done and he served his prison sentence. And so I interviewed him after he had been released. Um, so I think this is an example of that illustrates both the moral gray zone and a choiceless choice. Um, you know, in a, in, At its most basic level, Edie Edie was very clear. He's like, he didn't really remember making a decision. He just acted, um, I think, but out of desperation to make the torture stop, possibly to save his own life. Um, And he accepted moral responsibility for what he had done. Um, And yeah, I'll leave it there.
1: Yeah, and it, it illustrates the gray zone and the, the but it also suggests the need to rethink or at least nuance what have become traditional categories of perpetrator, victim, bystander, rescuer. Um, and I don't know. I, I know that those categories have come up numerous times on this podcast, so I want to ask you to elaborate on them. But I suspect we'll come back to them as we go along. Um. So you so. So you do a number of case studies, um, and I guess let's just start off with them by by bringing this back to the issue of religions um, and the what has become a widespread assumption, or or suggestion, or claim that Muslims were far more likely to rescue uh, or to be rescuers in in the genocide than Christians were, and that. This was shaped by their faith, religious faith and religious institutions. Um, So so I guess I'd ask you first just to give us the background. What uh, what's the brief version of the history and role of Islam in Rwandan society?
2: Yeah, great question. So um, unlike other regions of East and Central Africa, Islam did not arrive in Rwanda until um, the end of the 19th century. It had much The whole Swahili coast was Muslim for centuries before this. Um, So Islam and Christianity essentially arrived in Rwanda around the same time. Uh, The main difference is how they arrived. Well, they both arrived with the colonizers, essentially with European colonizers. Um, It's the Belgians who bring Christianity to Rwanda or initially the Germans, I should say, bring Christianity to Rwanda. Um, and it's their their African soldiers and their porters who bring Islam to Rwanda, um, because the German state recruited African soldiers into their colonial armies um, in Africa. Uh, and so um, in any case, the European colonial administration, first the Germans and then the Belgians, they invite in Christian missionaries as part of their colonial project. Um, The initial Christian missionaries founded in Rwanda, Catholic Church, it's 1904 or something like that, or no, it's 1901, the first Catholic mission in Rwanda. Uh, The um, Protestants also arrive around the same time, uh, Seventh-day Adventists from the United States um, by the 1920s are there. Um, Islam, on the other hand, is not part of the colonial administration and um, due to tensions between the Catholic and Christian sects and Islam, um, the Catholic Church convinces the colonial administrators to try to discourage the spread of Islam. Um, As a result of this, um, there is essentially under the colonial, early colonial state in Rwanda, a form of apartheid where Muslims must live in designated neighborhoods um, in the growing towns that emerged during the colonial period because Rwanda didn't really have cities before that or towns. Um, And so um, in any of the colonial outposts, there are designated neighborhoods where Muslims should live. This includes soldiers and their families, merchants, um, another early influence of Islam in Rwanda are the Omani merchants coming from Oman, traveling down the Swahili coast and importing their goods um, into Rwanda. Um, and they're still in Rwanda today. Many Rwandans who are descended from Omanis and who still have actually a distinct culture um, and practice Um, They practice Islam, but they practice Islam in a way that's flavored by Omani culture and have specific foods they cook and other kinds of things. Um, So for a long time, Islam was primarily um, an imported religion, um, but they began to, um, how it spread in Rwanda is through um, women marrying in, Rwandan women marrying into Muslim households, Um, or also through um, the employees of merchants. Rwandans would get work working for merchants and would eventually then convert to Islam. Um, And so that's how Islam spread. and then once Belgian becomes the colonizer, um, they continued the apartheid system. And so under Belgian colonialism, Muslims lived in what were called Swahili camps. Um, in Rwanda, Muslims were referred to as Swahili, assuming that they had come from the coast. Um, also, Muslims in Rwanda tended to speak Swahili in addition to Kenya Rwanda. Um, and, um, uh, if you lived in a Swahili camp, you were not allowed outside the camp if you didn't have a laissez passe. So in general, you were allowed out during the daytime to work, but at night you had to be back inside the um, settlement. Um, and these, um, the history of these encampments play played a role in 1994 in certain communities that had historically been uh, Swahili camps. Um, but then also in the post-colonial state, um, because it's so closely allied with the Catholic Church, the political leaders in the post-colonial state were um, had all gone to seminary and had grown up Catholic. Uh, they continued to discriminate against Muslims in the post-colonial state. So in 1994, it was estimated that less than two percent of the population of Rwanda uh, practiced Islam. Whereas approximately 80% practice Catholicism and another 10% practice other forms of Christianity.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So with that background, how did you try and test this hypothesis that Islam was important or maybe even determinative in leading people to rescue and what kind of results did you find?
2: Great question. So, um, It was long said in Rwanda that Muslims didn't participate at all or participated less in the genocide, that they rescued more. Um, There were plenty of clues that this wasn't entirely true. Um, Several of the people indicted by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, for example, had Muslim names. Um, And so I wanted to investigate this. And what I did is I designed the study so that each of the case studies paired um, a predominantly Muslim community or settlement with a neighboring, predominantly Christian community or settlement. Um, And I did that um, in different regions of the country to capture the different timelines of the genocide beginning and ending because the timeline wasn't consistent across the country. Um, I also chose communities that were near the border, either the land border with the Congo or the uh, Lake Kivu border with the Congo, um, because I had heard that uh, people use the lake as a form to. Uh, as a way to escape Um, and then um, I also included two major cities uh, the city of Kigali and a predominantly Muslim well what was historically a predominantly Muslim neighborhood but what in 1994 was a highly mixed neighborhood in terms of religion and then also the town of Giseni initially in Giseni we tried to have a predominantly Muslim neighborhood and a predominantly Catholic neighborhood but as the research unfolded we determined that there was uh, really um, intermixed residences of both Christianity and uh, Catholicism and Adventist, Seventh-day Adventists. So there wasn't a possible to make them distinct geographic um, samples. Um, and so that's how we paired um, the, the findings. Um, and what I would say we found is that religion um, did make a difference, but not in the ways that had been assumed. Um, for communities, for Muslim communities that had historically been Swahili camps, um, the families that lived in those communities had a very close kinship and friendship ties dating back several generations. They knew each other since the colonial period, um, and um, that meant they had very close-knit social ties, um, and they also... Um, were very intermixed. They were there were many uh, Hutu and Tutsi mixed families among them, um, and they tended to, in those communities, maintain solidarity and unity among themselves, um, and defended against the incursion of genocidal violence from outside. Um, in one community, Muganda Mare near Nyanza, they in fact resurrected sort of, they put up barriers around the community where the walls had been to keep outsiders out. Um, And then they allowed, Tutsis began fleeing towards those communities and um, uh, hundreds were saved in each of these communities um, by being hidden inside them. Um, And occasionally um, there would be um, inter-Homwe or Uh, soldiers who would enter the communities that they didn't, the community members didn't succeed in keeping them out, but then people would move between houses in hiding Mm -hmm. through back passages that only people in the neighborhood knew about as a way to avoid discovery. Um, So that's one way that um, it made a difference. Another important distinction between Islam and uh, particularly Catholicism in Rwanda and actually all the Christian churches is that um, in 1993, as um, violence against Tutsi was becoming more normative in Rwanda, and as the poli- polarization of the political arena was becoming more extreme, uh, the Mufti, who is the elected leader of the association, the Muslim Association of Rwanda, uh, he issued an official um, edict telling Muslims that participating in the in extremist politics was uh, not in line with the teachings of Islam, that it was a sin to do so, um, that they should not join political parties, and that um, hating or encouraging violence against people because of their ethnicity or race were also forbidden by Islam. Um, And the Catholic Church never issued a similar definitive statement. Um, And what this meant was that when the genocide began in early April of 1994, um, Muslims who had been going to the mosque and paying attention to uh, the messages received in the mosques had been told that participating in this kind of violence was sinful. Catholics, on the other hand, heard different messages depending on what the priests in their parish had been preaching. There was not a uniform message. Um, And as a result, unfortunately, many Catholics concluded that the genocide was in fact, um, genocidal violence was in fact a form of self-defense against an invading army. They believed the official government messages that this wasn't these were acts of self-defense and justifiable then under religion, or even that perhaps God um, accepted these things. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's not definitive in terms of how people acted, but it did influence how people acted. And there are plenty of Catholics who who recognize that engaging in genocidal violence was sinful, um, but there wasn't as clear a message. Um, and then the last way that I think religion made a difference, um, is Muslims did have this history of being marginalized in Rwandan society, um, which made it, um, perhaps made it easier for them to adopt the perspective of what it must be like for Tutsis who are being singled out that made it easier for them to understand, um, uh, what it feels like to be targeted um, in these ways, and perhaps then um, encourage them to be more receptive to requests for assistance. Um, Now, there were Muslims who participated and some became notorious killers. Um, And in one of the chapters I use as the epigraph, a Kenyarwanda proverb, that one Muslim I interviewed uh, mobilized, Every family has its idiot child, Um, meaning that, um, yes, in general, Muslims didn't participate, uh, but every family has its idiot child. So even some of our children didn't understand that this was wrong.
1: Yeah, these are really interesting chapters. I wonder, as I read them, I, I wondered how academics were imagining and defining religion, right? Because people come participate in a religion in a variety of different ways. And some participated because the theology is important to them and some because the relationships they build are important to them and some because the rituals have, are comforting to them. Um, is is that how, how did you imagine what it meant to be Muslim as you looked at these Um, case studies and and just how did you deal with those kind of nuances
2: yeah that's a great question i mean um going into and developing the project i did think about okay what is religion Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be religious and i made long lists like (laughs) going to church or going to the mosque (laughs) praying um Eating halal if you're a Muslim Mm -hmm. or fasting during Lent, like so. It's a it's a wide range of beliefs and practices and social relationships, Um, and I think going into this study, one it's part of why actor network theory as a theoretical framework worked really well because it allowed us to disaggregate religion as a lot of different actions or relationships rather than a monolithic thing Um, and it's one thing that sets apart this study from other studies of the interactions between religion and genocide Um, because uh, it was very clear to us that um, Islam and Catholicism and Seventh-day Adventism, which are the primary religious groups we engage, I engage with in this book. Um, it's a whole set of beliefs and practices that have different meanings for different people at different times in their lives. Um, and it's one of the challenges of this research and a a critique from one of the reviewers of the grant proposal that did get funded, um, was that, um, How can you know, based on retrospective accounts, if what someone tells you today is what motivated their actions Mm -hmm. 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. Um, The reviewer conceded, like, perhaps you can't know. Um, And how I accounted for that in this study is we did ask people, why did you do what you did? Or why did you make that particular choice when they recounted a story? And sometimes they would say, I'm not sure I made a choice or like in the story of Edie, I said uh, I recounted or other times they would say, well, often when I interviewed Muslims, they would say, well, um, it's it's sinful in Islam to kill, which I didn't take that as face value. For me, that was them using religion today day to justify actions in the past because it it's a nice package tied up with a bow, but I didn't accept that as the reasons why they did
1: things. Um, yeah. So you mentioned borders, right? So if religion is a set of human institutions and relationships, borders are human created, but maybe more abstract. So so can you talk about what it means to think about borders as actors?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one thing to keep in mind, um, in today's world, um, when most people, when we think of a border, we think of fences and gates and barbed wire and guard towers and no man's land between two borders and such things. Um, and that is one manifestation of a border, but um, I don't know if you've ever flown into or out of the Montreal airport, um, but I crossed the US border in Montreal because immigration U.S. immigration looked at my passport and documents in Montreal before I boarded the plane. And when I got off in the United States, I was free to go about my business. Um, And so if you think then about more abstract places where you encounter the border in your life, suddenly you realize that a border is like a concept. It's not always a place. Um, Now, in Rwanda in 1994, um, one of the case studies in our... um, in the book that comprises two chapters is uh, the town of Giseni on the Rwandan side of the border, on the Congolese side of the border, that's the city of Goma, which is much larger. Like border towns anywhere in the world, um, Goma and Giseni are essentially one economic unit operating across a border. Um, and in um, 94 in particular, Um, There was the official border crossing. There were some places in the town where there were walls, um, but large swaths of the border between the two cities were simply open fields with not even really any clear markers on them that this was the border. Um, And so one of the, you know, there was great opportunity then to cross in an undocumented way across the border. Um, And even in some ways, this continues on today um, in Rwanda and elsewhere, because in the in the in the book, I I feature a picture taken in 2013 of the border wall, and it's a residence of a house, and there's a door in the in the in the yards in the in the fence around the yard's wall. So like they can open the door and step into Rwanda without officially crossing the border. I don't know how often they do that, but it still happens today. And then we can think about Lake Kivu, which is a massive lake. At most places along the lake, you can't see the other side. Uh, the border is literally an imaginary line somewhere in the middle of that watery expanse. Um, And so these are the ways that, so the border is an abstraction. How does it become an agent or an actor in, uh, in people's lives? Well, in the, during the genocide, crossing the border, if you were Tutsi, was in fact a way to save your life. And so, um, it was a demarcator at times though, the border became a way to be trapped because, um, as the genocide progressed, the interhomway discovered and the government soldiers discovered that people were using illegal border crossings as a way to flee. And so they would set up traps during the night to catch people there. Um, but in the book, I look at many different cases of the ways the border was used in um, creative ways for people to escape. Uh, one is the case of um, Felicite Nia-Tikeka who was, um, a well-known religious leader in Giseni and who was at a retreat center um, that was right on the border. And she helped people cross the border during the nights uh, negotiating with the border guards. They were actually crossing at the official border station but she negotiated for them to sneak across. Um, I also look at the case, um, smugglers um, or businessmen who were also smugglers, cause you're usually both uh, in most places, um, you, you, you export and import some of your goods legally and officially and others outside of the official economy. So smugglers knew ways to get people back and forth across the border. Um, and in this way, um, they, uh, during the genocide often use those routes to save people's lives um, for no remun- remuneration or any benefits themselves. Um, And then um, I also looked at a rural community on Lake Kivo in Kora. There was a mosque there um, and um, many of the people um, affiliated with the mosque um, used the lake as a way to evacuate people across the lake in their canoes and their fishing boats. Um, So in these ways, the border can can become an actor or an agent in a way that um, its relationship to humans gives it this kind of agency or power
1: and while you focus on it in one of your last chapters it's it's pervasive throughout the book really in the sense that the the assumptions about how people should act, about the the traditions that guide people's behaviors, about the way in which age or gender or head of family affects the way authority and the way people can can carry themselves pervades the book. Uh, I think about the, uh, the, the woman, relatively elderly, poor woman who was able to carry children to safety through the border precisely because of, at least you suggest, at least in part, because of her age and the status that afforded her. Um, and you talk about how you, you make reference to the fact that you might not have seen these if, except for the fact that you've been going to Rwanda for decades. And so that's a whole other kind of actor. So can you say a little bit about the kinds of, I mean, you obviously can't do everything, but the ways in which Rwandan cultural practices and attitudes and memories shaped their relationship to the idea of rescue or the practice of rescue.
2: <clears throat> yeah, so um, so one factor we di- I did fi- identify um, is that often people who engaged in rescue in 1994 had witnessed either their parents or other close relatives helping Tutsis at other moments of anti-Tutsi violence in the history of the country. Um, And so this actually supports some of the research that Irvin Staub has done on this intergenerational transmission of morality. Um, So that's one way, but I would say in terms of... um, status in society is it is in is in many ways much more determinative in Rwandan culture than it is in the United States um, in that you are who you're related to like when you introduce yourself people want to know who your parents are and who your children are because that determines who you are it also matters what your job is and other kinds of things like that. Um, so the example of the old woman who carried children on her back across the border, Um, she was ignored by the border guards as being irrelevant, not a threat because she was poor and she was elderly. And she just said, this is my grandchild on my back. And so she wasn't invested. It was almost as if it gave her a form of invisibility, um, her impoverishment. Um, Now, on the other hand, people who were really important in Rwandan society, Um, Some of them use their status as a way also to help rescue. Um, So another case I look at is um, a merchant um, in Giseni who had a close relationship to a highly placed government official who was implicated in the genocide and who served time and was prosecuted by the ICTR. Um, But this merchant used his relationship to that man, which was publicly known, as a way to get people across the border um, by putting them and hiding them in his car. Um, because by showing people that he was related to this highly placed government official, he didn't get the scrutiny that others might've gotten as they crossed the border. Um, and then we can take the example of um, priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, priests in general were, are given great deference in Rwanda, um, particularly by Catholics. Um, and priests um, who uh, often would use this um, influence as a way to um, help people or save people or protect people. Um, so um, I don't tell the story in the book, but there's the case um, in Kigali of Father Celestin who was at the St. Paul um, Center. Uh, and um, he talked about, he wore his vestments, his, uh, robes for mass all the time every day so that if guards came or if soldiers or interhomway came and wanted to come into the church grounds and inspect that they would respect him in his authority as being a priest. Um, it didn't always work but it often worked um, and allowed him to t- protect people there um, in collaboration with a lot of other priests and other people who were working together. Um, So all of these kinds of things mattered. In some cases, high status gave you the greater power to protect and save. In other cases, low status made you not suspicious or invisible and allowed you to help people. So we're running to
1: the end of our time. So a few concluding questions really quick. And I don't even know quite how to phrase this. In my notes, I just have the phrase, so then luck you have some things to say about luck what what after doing all of this what is your sense of the role of luck
2: yeah um i mean unfortunately um as someone who likes to be in total control of everything all the time <laughs> that is my preferred status in the world um luck and fate matter um that is what we found um it no matter how much people tried um sometimes being successful in rescue or being successfully rescued depended on luck, Um, things that were completely out of your control. Um, And that, um, I actually take that out of the work of Jacques Semelin and his study of rescue in Vichy France. I recommend that book for any who haven't read it yet. It's available in English and in French. Um, He talks about the role of fate or luck and, or chance is usually the word he uses. Um, So it does matter. And yet it alone doesn't determine everything, Um, but it does make a difference. Um, uh, Good luck and bad luck, unfortunately, play a role. We can't be in control of everything all the time. And
1: then along with that, you point out that things that may appear to be luck bear a direct relationship to the context in which people are. This network of time and things and people and structures and and in particular, I'm struck by the way you suggest that the length of time in which rescue was required—the longer people had to to hide someone, the less likely they were to continue to act, you know, in, in, to to try and rescue—was important. So, so maybe you can say a little bit about that time span and the way the regional variations and how long the genocide lasted mattered.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that. So part of my case selection for this study, um, I wanted to capture places where the genocide began um, on on the, in the early morning hours of April 7th, um, that would be Kigali and Gisenyi. Killing started immediately in those uh, cities. Um, and I also wanted to capture then um, places where the genocide was delayed because government officials refused to implement it. And so I selected Nyanza and Mugandamari in the South where the genocide didn't begin until around April 21st. After the mayor of that, um, district was lynched publicly in a very public display of violence as a way to terrorize the population and push people to begin to comply with the genocide orders. Um, So this delayed start made a difference in a number of ways. Um, And then the other factor is how quickly the genocidal violence was brought to an end by the advancing Rwandan patriotic army or rebel group that ended the genocide by seizing most of the territory of the country. Um, and they were waging a military campaign, and so they made their advancing their decisions of where and how to advance based on military advantage. But in communities where the genocide ended more quickly and began later, rescue was more possible. And more likely to succeed simply because there was less opportunity for it to go wrong or to be discovered or other kinds of things. Um, Another factor is that the longer the genocide went on, the greater the pressure on those who were either not complying with the genocide, who were resisting participating in the genocide, or who were actively helping Tutsi, the greater the pressure on them to comply and the greater their fear became that they would become victims or be forced to kill kill the people they were hiding. Um, My research shows that it's not very often that people who were engaged in rescue were themselves killed or were forced to kill people that they were saving, but it didn't happen that often because it didn't need to happen that often to have a great effect because its purpose was terrorism more so than the um, acts of violence themselves. Um, and so those combined factors meant that um, the longer someone needed to be rescued or t- someone needed to engage actively on a daily basis in rescue, the harder it became <clears throat> for them to continue to do that and continue to make that choice.
1: So, so then finally, um maybe a a couple, three, four sentences each on on some implications, which if I was talking to a historian, I probably would be willing to ignore. But you're a social scientist, and you can't ignore that. So so what are the implications for policymakers from the book? Um,
2: Great question. I would say, um, just continuing on the timeline factor, the biggest mistake the international community made in 1994 in Rwanda was not intervening in the violence quickly and immediately. It is very clear that in retrospect that an immediate intervention could have brought the violence to an end or would have brought the violence to an end. Um, the Rwandan governments and the military at the time would not have likely fought against an international intervention. Um, and um, that would have meant that people who were in hiding in this first couple of weeks would have been saved who ended up dying. Um, so that's one. Um, I would say two, um, I think at a basic human level, um, encouraging everyone or raising our children to be kind and empathetic, these are important factors and important things and teaching cooperation. Um, And I think um, thinking back to the before times, before COVID and the so-called after times of COVID now, um, I I do fear that we've lost some of our capacity on an everyday basis to interact in kind ways with strangers. Um, And I think that is a very dangerous situation for society, because I do think that this basic social fabric need we need to mend it and make sure that we are looking out for each other and taking care of each other in in very simple, basic human ways. Um, I don't know how much policymakers can do about that, but each of us as individuals can do things about that on a daily basis. Um, And then lastly, I would say, um, I guess the last takeaway I would say is that the most important, one of the most important things from this book for me is that um, just as many ordinary Rwandans or some ordinary Rwandans became perpetrators in the genocide, many, many, many ordinary people chose to do good things and to help people. They might not have done it consistently over 100 days, but The few times that they did help someone might have made it possible for that person's life to be saved. And so I think it's um, looking for these glimmers of hope and reminding ourselves that we can be the one who's courageous in a moment um, and be willing to help um, and stand up for someone who is being mistreated are, I think, like the most basic lessons to take from the study.
1: Well, that seems an appropriate place to stop talking about the book. Um, there's much more in the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about. It's it's a terrific book and you really should go out and buy it or get it from a library and read it, uh, if only for the heart attack that it will cause among more strict social sciences with the claim that social science theory cannot explain. I wondered if you weren't going to become a historian and in the midst of writing this book, but but it's a terrific book. I'll I'll end with the same two questions I always end interviews with. First, um, I have grading to do, and I don't want to do it. I'd really rather read or watch something important, and I'm sure that's true of people who are are listening. What do you have a book or maybe a documentary or something that you would suggest to us that that you found important while you were working on this book that we should read?
2: Um. So I would encourage everyone to read Leanne Fuji's work. Um, I'm sorry she's no longer with us. Um, She passed away unexpectedly several years ago, but her research on Rwanda and elsewhere has deeply influenced my own. Um, All of her books are fabulous. Um, And then if you're looking for something more lighthearted, but still on the topic of genocide, I know those things don't really go well together usually. Um, there's this great independent film that I quite love called Kinyarwanda that was released in 2011. Uh, the director is Ulrich Brown, but the story uh, was written and originated from Rwandans. It features Rwandan actors and was shot and filmed in Rwanda. Um, it's quite a it's quite a lovely little film. It does deal with the genocide. It does depict some scenes of rescue. Um, and um, it's just a very nice, um, I think it's a nice story story um, and well told.
1: I'll just take this personal privilege moment to say that um, the interview with Leanne was the third interview I ever did for this podcast. And she was generous enough to come out to Newman and give a talk here. And it was a a great loss for all of us. Um, But yes, go read her book. And so this is an unfair question to ask an academic who spent 10 or some years working on a book, but we do live in a university system. What are you working on next?
2: Uh, I'm glad you asked. Um, I have two ongoing projects that I'm working on. The first is um, a grant, uh, funded by the National Science Foundation um, primarily I'm working with students and we're looking at the long-term legacies of racialized violence mm-hmm. in Georgia um, and I have a collaborator in Florida looking at Florida um, and in particular we're looking at the ways that this history this long this history of racialized violence in these two states shapes our political geographies our everyday political geographies today. Okay. Um, but also the ways that um, African American and uh, Native American communities have resisted the impositions Mm. um, of white supremacy essentially and how they've resisted um, this violence. Mm. Um, So that's one project and then I am also working, uh, one of the things I'm very passionate about at this point in my career is efforts to diversify the professorate and to get more students from underrepresented minority backgrounds um, to go into graduate school and get PhDs and perhaps go into the professorate or go out in the world and make it a better place. Um, and so I'm working with a team at Georgia State University on an NSF advance grant uh, to improve the climate and sense of belongingness for um, women in STEM fields and our underrepresented minority groups um, in STEM fields uh, so that we can uh, hopefully have an impact on the next generation of um, people who will be doing this work in the future.
1: Well, it sound like a great project. Um, I hope that you will come back and be on the show again and talk more about them later. We've been talking to with uh, Jenny Burnett uh, about her new book, To Save Heaven and Earth, Rescue in the Rwanda Genocide. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.